Good afternoon, beautiful people. I'm keeping all my content free of charge so there's complete transparency so everyone can get the benefit of all the information. This is a completely independent podcast, but any monetary support is greatly appreciated. Click the support this podcast link at the end of the episode description for more details. Now back to the show. Due to popular demand, you can subscribe to Kiko's Freethinkers Forum on YouTube. You can watch all of our videos there on our YouTube platform. Now you can also subscribe and listen to any of our audio on Spotify, Anchor, Radio Public, Podvine, Podbean, Amazon, and different platforms. Please tell your friends and family, and I hope you enjoy your day, beautiful people. Good afternoon, beautiful people. Welcome to a special episode 30 of Kiko's Freethinkers Forum. I'm here with a very special guest. His name is Dr. Jack Rasmus, and he just retired from St. Mary's College in Moraga, California. He is an economist, and he talks a lot about um, the Ukraine-Russia situation. He's going to be one of three guests that are specifically going to talk about the Russia-Ukraine conflict that um, started out of thin air, according to the to the mainstream media, but we know that that's not true. And we're going to learn today exactly um, the origins of this um, conflict that we have right now. And he has quite an extensive um, publishing record. He has tons of articles that he's published for LA Progressive, for Counterpunch as well. He has his own website at uh, jackrasmus.com. I'm going to share all the links and stuff at the end of the um, episode. But I want to say thanks for accepting that invitation, and I can't wait to learn along with my audience. Glad to join you. I found out about you because of this book right here that I have in my hand. It's called Flashpoint in Ukraine, How the U.S. Drive for Hegemony Risk World War III. And you hear that come up a lot um, in the news. You hear about this talk of World War III. And uh, I guess what I would ask you first is to kind of establish a a tone, kind of like you have in your um, write-ups. You have one that you wrote early last year in 2022 that's entitled 10 Reasons Why the U.S. May Want Russia to Invade Ukraine. So this is before the invasion even happened. And before then, you contributed to the chapter of the book in question today, Flashpoint in Ukraine. And it talks about the economics of the situation. And Dr. Rasmus's chapter is um, who benefits from the Ukraine economic crisis. That's um, the particular chapter that he contributed to Flashpoint in Ukraine. So give the audience a sense of um, where did we begin with this? And um, not necessarily taking sides, but kind of presenting the information as um, what led up to this crisis that we're currently in right now. Right. Well, let me preface it uh, before I begin by saying I just uh, finished uh, an article called Revisiting the Ten Reasons Why. They may want to invade, uh, you know, just uh, assessing how much of uh, my 10 recent predictions were actually true. About seven or eight of them have been pretty much verified. And you can read that follow on revisiting article on my blog, jackrasmus.com. You can also get it uh, on uh, LA Progressive, just produced it last, last week. Uh, well, it, it's a good question that you initially raised because you can't understand what's going on over there 
if you just listen to CNN or Fox or MSNBC, because uh, they sort of pick up the whole thing uh, with uh, the February uh, Russian invasion, you know, like everything just begins then. Mm-hmm. And Russia has uh, had no uh, justification uh, to invade and uh, Russia's the imperialist, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which is mostly propaganda. Uh, to really understand that, you've got to uh, look at the history of this. Uh, and uh, that's what I did at the time in uh, February of 2014. But the, the true history of this, the background of this goes back to at least the late 1990s. Uh, that's when the U.S. Uh, reversed its longstanding policy of not expanding NATO into Eastern Europe. You see, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 91, the whole agreement between leading uh, uh, U.S. Uh, experts and politicians, James Baker, Secretary of State, and George F. Kennan, you know, longtime uh, U.S. advisor on Russia. Uh, the, the whole agreement was uh, NATO would not move east, would not threaten Russia. Uh, that was the, the understanding. Uh, but then in the late 1990s, uh, that's just what the U, uh, U.S. started to do, because there was a major change in foreign policy in the late 90s under Bill Clinton, uh, the neocons, which are reckless uh, right-wingers <laughs> in foreign policy, who gave us 20 years of war in the Middle East, uh, cost us $7 trillion. We got nothing to show for it. Uh, the neocons uh, ascended to pretty much control of U.S. foreign policy under Bill Clinton. You know, Bill Clinton couldn't keep his zipper closed. And uh, he got uh, he got stuck with, uh, you know, impeachment and a trial. And uh, Bill Clinton just about turned everything over to anybody uh, politically in the opposition in order to uh, get them to back off from uh, throwing him out of office. So it begins in the late 1990s. Uh, the U.S., I think it was 99, uh, expanded NATO uh, to Poland and some of the other northern Eastern European countries. Uh, and then again, NATO expanded under George Bush uh, to the southern Eastern European countries, you know, Romania, Bulgaria, and, and others like that. Uh, in 2008, uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, instigated, uh, 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 you know, Georgia to invade Russia. And of course, they lost that one. That was embarrassing. Uh, and then uh, the, the U.S. Uh, policy uh, uh, added uh, the rest of the Eastern European countries, the Baltics and so forth, uh, to NATO. Uh, and NATO is kind of an existential threat to Russia. Uh, and Russia knows it. If Russia gets surrounded by NATO countries, uh, it's just a matter of a few minutes uh, where missiles, uh, you know, Western NATO, U.S. Uh, missiles uh, can, uh, you know, attack uh, Moscow and and. Petrograd and, and so forth, St. Petersburg uh, and so forth. And, and the Russians know it and it's an existential threat as they see it, because in their history, it's happened so many times. They've been invaded by uh, the West uh, so many times, uh, not just Hitler, but Napoleon and others. So they're very, you got to understand their psychology, their historical psychology. They're very nervous about this. Uh, and then in two, 2013, uh, what the U.S. did uh, historically, people aren't aware of it, was to fund uh, a, a ground forces to uh, enact a, a coup d'etat 
in November of 2013, uh, an election occurred in Ukraine, and um, you you had two candidates then. Uh, one was uh, pro-Russia, wanted to keep uh, trading with Russia because uh, they had always been Ukraine, always been part of the uh, uh, trading block there with Russia. And you had another group uh, that uh, wanted to break off all relations with Russia. And uh, that sort of contention politically had been going on in Ukraine forever. Western Ukraine uh, was part of Poland at one time. And Western Ukraine always leans towards Europe. And Eastern Ukraine always leans towards Russia. Uh, so these two sets of forces uh, you know, were contending electorally and politically. And, and it, before 2014, they were uh, trading off the presidency right and left, you know. Uh, but uh, Ukraine was kind of neutral after 1991. Uh, and uh, the new president got elected, was slightly pro-Russian, but he wanted to uh, trade with both Europe and Russia. He didn't want to break off relations with either. Whereas the other candidate uh, wanted to totally break off with Russia and just uh, uh, trade with, with Europe. Now, what happened in, in the winter of 2013-14 was that uh, the United States uh, funded uh, the shock troops uh, on the ground, neo-Nazis, very clearly neo-Nazis. They run around with you know, symbols and their hero is this guy, Stepan Bandera who uh, sided with the, the Nazis during World War II and uh, engineered uh, mass uh, extermination of uh, Ukrainian Jews and other people. Uh, so he's their hero, Stepan Bandera. He was a you know avowed uh, fascist Nazist. And uh, these forces uh, on the ground were these movements, uh, neo-Nazi movements that the US used uh, to overthrow uh, the narrowly elected government in uh, late 2013. Narrowly elected president there, I think, we, I forgot his exact name, uh, who uh, wanted to deal, you know, trade with both sides. No, they wanted to break Ukraine off, uh, have it become part of NATO and so forth. But the point is that the US uh, leader at the time, Victoria Nuland, who was the Undersecretary of State for Eastern Europe, who, by the way, was a uh, 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 private equity hedge fund uh, finance uh, CEO out of Chicago who went into the government. Uh, and she uh, engineered uh, th that th the payment to these groups, these neo-Nazi groups, to overthrow the elected, very narrowly elected, by the way, uh, new president in late 2013. It was a coup d'etat. And she bragged about it publicly on TV. She even got caught saying, uh, we spent $5 billion, we the US, and uh, we got what we wanted, and we're going to put our boys in charge. And that early government had uh, uh, many of these uh, neo-Nazi uh, uh, party uh, movement leaders in it. Uh, so uh, they installed who they wanted, the US, uh, as part of its strategy of moving east with NATO. Uh, you know, Ukraine would be the big plum here for NATO, uh, uh, pretty much pulled off the coup, coup d'etat. Uh, within a year, Victoria Nuland, who was still, you know, Undersecretary of State for the U.S. and the State Department, government official, uh, got herself appointed as the economic czar uh, for Ukraine by this new Ukrainian 
neo-Nazi government uh, that uh, she helped put in office, uh, economic czar, which means she ran the Ukrainian economy. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, Ukraine had to suspend its constitution saying that uh, foreigners, foreign born could not be in these positions. They suspended it from Victoria Newland. She became the czar, economic czar after the coup. And uh, it was at that point that the U.S. businesses descended on Ukraine. Uh, and by the way, you know, uh, descended means uh, they set up offices in Kiev and other places, right? Uh, throughout the country, they bought up uh, the best Ukrainian companies. Uh, they merged with them. They acquired them, uh, all the key areas. Uh, the U.S. penetrated economically Ukraine significantly, uh, in in this aftermath, uh, you know, and uh, for those of you who wonder why Joe Biden's son ended up in Ukraine, uh, he was part of that flow. He was not the only one. There were all kinds of sons and friends of U U.S. big businesses uh, that uh, got appointed to uh, uh, the, uh, the different boards of directors of these new Ukrainian companies, right? Uh, in 2014-15, uh, um, Ukraine uh, pretty much uh, initiated a civil war against their eastern provinces. The, those provinces saw what happened with the coup and would not go along with it. Uh, we're talking about the Donbass provinces, Crimea and so forth. Uh, and uh, they would not recognize the new coup government. Well, the new coup government now controlled the army and... Uh, uh, they launched an offensive uh, to uh, break the back of this uh, breakaway uh, provinces in the east, uh, Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, and uh, uh, I figure Kherson was the other one. Mm -hmm. Okay, those four provinces uh, broke away, which are highly Russian uh, uh, native-born people. You see, if you look at Ukraine demographically, uh, the eastern part of Ukraine is heavily Russian, over you know centuries of uh, immigration, uh, the western part uh, is more Polish and Galician and whatever. You know they're not the same demographic. Uh, one of the ultimate sources of the contention between the two parts of Ukraine, which has gone on for centuries, by the way, not not just recently, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the, the the new coup government uh, initiated military action against these provinces. And uh, actually began, um, you know, shelling these provinces militarily, and uh, that brought Russia in uh, uh, to defend uh, the Russian immigration people there in the eastern provinces, and to defend its its uh, military naval base in in Crimea. Uh, Crimea was always uh, heavily Russian. In fact, until 1956, it was always part of Russia, and. Uh, the communist government just sort of uh, gave it to Ukraine after 1956. But it's the main uh, Russian naval base there in the Baltic. And of course, when the coup happened, the Russians took back uh, their naval base and the Crimea itself. Uh, then the battles began in the Donbass region, as I described. Uh, and uh, th there was a temporary ceasefire in 2015 and 16, it was called the Minsk Agreement. Minsk is the capital of Belarus nearby. And the parties meant there to have a kind of a ceasefire and a truce, okay? Uh, but the truce did not last very long, was not really uh, uh, 
observed uh, by the Ukrainian government. Uh, and in fact, they just admitted this. And the Europeans who brokered this, cru this uh, truce, you know, uh, uh, in, in Germany uh, and in France, you know, French President Hollande, uh, Hollande and uh, in Germany, Merkel, uh, uh, they just admitted this past year that the whole Minsk agreement was just to buy time. Uh, mm -hmm. They didn't intend. I mean, this is on the public record that these people admitted this now. Uh, so, uh, you know, after that, uh, from 2017 to 2020, it was kind of a, a, a low degree conflict going on, violating the Minsk agreement. Uh, but under uh, Trump, President Trump, who was uh, more favorably disposed uh, to Russia, you might say, and who would not allow uh, the U.S. policy and, and Ukraine uh, to actually uh, go ahead and, um, and uh, launch full-scale warfare. Uh, and the U.S. was not in favor of that. In other words, uh, you know, the Ukrainians and Zelensky, the president, had to get the green light from the U.S. As soon as Biden got in power here in uh, spring of 2021, first couple months he was in power, uh, he uh, uh, dusted off a plan uh, that the, the U.S. had, developed by the Rand Corporation in 2016, uh, to uh, <clears throat> actually uh, intensify the conflict <clears throat> in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, you, you got to understand that the U.S. rapid pullout of Afghanistan in August of 21 is really part of the plan to go into Ukraine with both feet. Uh, clear the decks, kind of, you know, in, in Afghanistan, quickly, hurriedly, because in the last, second half of 21, the U.S. was beginning to implement uh, this Biden plan that was concocted uh, in March, I think it was, of 21, but actually has its roots back in 2016 uh, under Obama. Uh, so what happened in the second, second half of 2021 was the U.S. began to intensify its intimidation uh, and its uh, efforts uh, to provoke a conflict in, in Ukraine here. For example, uh, Biden and Zelensky started talking about, oh, we're going to bring uh, a Ukraine into NATO, in the European Union, and, and, uh, and into NATO. Uh, very blatantly, uh, the U.S. began to intensify its military support and training of, uh, of the Ukrainian army at that time in the closing months of 2021. Uh, Putin tried to get the U.S. to discuss what was going on. He tried several times, uh, but the U.S. refused to meet with him to even discuss what was going on in Ukraine. Uh, the U.S. then in December, as it did this buildup, started slapping Russia with uh, sanctions, uh, more sanctions, even though e even before the conflict began. Those sanctions intensified in January uh, and then, uh, of course, we have February 24th and 22, we have a Putin invasion, right, or the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, in a kind of limited military incursion. Uh, you know, you got to understand that the, this initial incursion, I think, was about trying to get Ukraine to uh, back off. Uh, the Ukrainian government and uh, take a more neutral stance, particularly on NATO. What Russia wants most of all is that uh, Ukraine remains neutral as far, far as military alliances are concerned. Uh, the initial Russian demands did not uh, actually say much more than that, be neutral, right? Uh, but uh, 
Zelensky and the U.S. were talking about not being neutral uh, in making moves towards a very fast-track uh, inclusion of Ukraine in, in NATO uh, there at the end of 2021, right? Uh, but you got to remember, uh, understand that this initial Russian invasion, uh, 190,000 troops uh, on four major fronts, four major fronts. Now, usually your combat troops are about half of what your total troops are. You know, you got logistics and support troops and so forth. So you really got like four divisions uh, on four different fronts. Now, there's no way uh, that, you know, that kind of a, of a, military operation uh, could conquer <laughs> Ukraine, as we've seen. Uh, and I think it was really about trying to intimidate the Kiev regime, particularly around Kiev, uh, to uh, come to the table and uh, to declare its, uh, its uh, neutrality. Uh, but by then, the U.S. was calling the shots. So the U.S. would not allow, uh, in my opinion, would not allow Zelensky and Ukraine uh, to sit down uh, and agree to anything, uh, because in my view, the U.S. wants this conflict. It wants a proxy war. Mm -hmm. It doesn't want to get involved itself. It wants a proxy war. It wants to arm Ukraine and let the Ukrainians and the Russians uh, slaughter each other and to drag that on as long as it can. Well, that's a repeat of the U.S. policy originally in 1979 uh, with regard to Afghanistan. That was the policy of the U.S. to uh, lure the Russians uh, into Afghanistan and then arm, uh, you know, the peasantry there uh, with all the weapons it needed and fight the Russians to a standstill and uh, bleed them militarily and economically. Uh, that was recommended uh, by the National Security Advisor in summer of 1979. His name was Zbigniew Brzezinski, right? Uh, an emigre from Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, who went to Canada and then went to Harvard and got connected, uh, you know, within the foreign policy established in the U.S. and became um, the advisor because of his rabid anti-Soviet, anti-Russian uh, positions, you know. Uh, and he became the national security advisor uh, for Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Carter, right? And he admits in public interviews later in the late 90s and in his memoir, uh, that uh, he went to Carter and suggested, let's lure the Russians into Afghanistan. Let's destabilize Afghanistan. So the new Afghanistan secular government at the time, there was a revolution in 78 in Afghanistan and a general took over, his name was Najibullah, right? Uh, mm -hmm. let's, let's destabilize Afghanistan uh, and uh, hopefully they'll call the Russians in. So the next six months, the 79, that's exactly what the U.S. did. And by the end of, uh, of December and early January of 7980, the Russians uh, fell for the bait and they did invade, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you call it an invasion if they were called in by the government? I don't know. That's semantics. Uh, in any event, uh, what followed was eight years at least of this debilitating military conflict that undermined the Russian military and public confidence and the economy and played a role, I think, uh, uh, in the, the eventual collapse of the Soviet Union here in, in 1991. So the US, I think, uh, uh, envisioned a similar policy 
foreign policy. I call it Brzezinski 2.0. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to lure Russia into invading uh, Ukraine, uh, which, of course, it did. And that's where I got to my 10 reasons why the U.S. may want Russia to invade Ukraine. OK, so that that gives the, the context, the historical background and context to this, that you can't understand what's going on in Ukraine unless you understand this whole background in history, which the U.S. media, corporate media, does not want you to understand. You know, as I said before, to them and what they're feeding uh, the U.S. populace is that this thing began with the Russian invasion and of that the, the U.S. has uh, got clean hands on this. But I really think this is a Brzezinski 2.0 and uh, they, this was planned for some time. Uh, and to a, a major extent, it's proved successful for U.S. foreign policy. Mm -hmm. You know, what happened in, uh, in Europe, uh, in NATO under Trump was that uh, uh, NATO was breaking away, the French and the Germans in particular, from Trump, uh, from, from the U.S. as a result of Trump. You know, Trump kept bad-mouthing them, saying, you don't spend enough. And then there was this Helsinki meeting with Putin that scared the hell out of the Europeans, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, control influence over NATO was seriously declining. Uh, and the Germans and French were talking about independent uh, foreign policy, mil military policy. Uh, and um, as a result of the invasion here and the conflict in Ukraine, the U.S. has reestablished its total control uh, over NATO. Uh, and NATO does whatever it wants now. So its hegemony over NATO has been totally established. The other main objective that I talked about in the article was that U.S. policy is to drive Russia uh, out of the energy markets uh, in Europe, oil and gas, which Europe is becoming increasingly dependent upon, uh, before it got too far to drive Russia out and drive them out of all other economic and financial markets in the West as well, so that the U.S. could fill, refill that vacuum and make uh, uh, Europe and NATO uh, even more dependent on the U.S. Well, they succeeded in that. They've succeeded in that. They, meaning the U.S. and U.S. foreign policy establishment, they've they've driven just about totally now Russia out of the market uh, markets uh, in, in general. They've reestablished hegemony and control over NATO to the extent NATO just does whatever the U.S. wants now. Uh, and there were other objectives as well. Uh, you know, if uh, if the U.S. comes in, drives Russia out. Uh, big profits for U.S. oil and gas companies uh, because they're charging Europe three times what the Russians were. Uh, so not only is Europe dependent economically now on U.S. Uh, energy, <coughs> but, uh, you know, U.S. oil companies making huge profits. Last year, uh, uh, Exxon, Chevron, the big four in the U.S. Uh, registered record profits of over $50 billion each, each. And now they've just announced that they're going to give uh, uh, stock buybacks and dividend payouts, just about $50 billion each. Uh, and all the other oil companies are doing the same thing, even, even foreign oil companies. So uh, somebody's getting very, very rich off of this. It's the oil companies, not only from increased sales at a higher price in Europe, but it creates a shortage here in the US that allows them, as happened last year, to jack up US prices, gasoline. <laughs> their prices so they're 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 getting two bites of the apple and they're making uh, absurd obscene profits here and there's no uh, 
nothing forthcoming from Congress to tax these as super windfall profits at all. So, you know, they and the military industrial complex, you know, war makers, uh, Lockheed, Raytheon, others, they're, they're making money hand over fist as a result of this policy, uh, U.S. foreign policy here to uh, pretty much engineer a coup and then uh, lure Russia to invade. Uh, and, uh, you know, NATO has gained uh, even further power with uh, Sweden and, uh, and Finland going to mm -hmm. join now. Okay. So, uh, you know, the U.S. is encircling Russia uh, with NATO. And if they prevail in, in Ukraine, they've got them totally encircled. Uh, and uh, they can then intimidate Russia and get whatever they want out of Russia in terms of politics and economic decisions here. Uh, you know, they'll be located just uh, four or five minutes in terms of uh, uh, missiles uh, from uh, Moscow. And one of the favorite uh, topics of discussion in the neocon military uh, establishment in the U.S. is to do a decapitation, uh, a nuclear strike. In other words, it's now becoming popular uh, thinking that, uh, oh, we can win a nuclear war if we just hit the Russians, uh, level Moscow and, uh, and uh, St. Petersburg and some of these other cities immediately, uh, quickly, uh, you know, disable their military response so that, uh, you know, they, they can't respond. We can win a nuclear war. Uh, this is, you know, penetrating uh, the, mm -hmm. the, the uh, State Department and thinking in the military in the United States, which is very, very dangerous, you know. Uh, this this very much could lead uh, to a nuclear confrontation with Russia. And that's my main concern. You know, uh, I, I, I'm not a Russia lover. And I'm not America hater. Uh, but I am very much concerned about American empire and its uh, adventures under the neocon leadership to take on these military confrontations with, with, without really thinking the whole thing through. These people, you know, myopically think they can pull this off, you know, and they, they're talking now, uh, uh, well, next phase, we, we got to uh, uh, provide uh, missiles to uh, Ukraine here so they can level the Russian uh, naval base uh, in, in the Crimea, you know, and I said to them, hey, remember Pearl Harbor, folks, you know, do you think that they're just going to capitulate if you do that? Uh, then you're going to have an all-out war. But this is the kind of crazy thinking going on by this mm -hmm. neocon establishment, you know, the Newlands and Sullivan there and Blinken, you know, uh, who are running foreign policy. Uh, my concern is the danger to us here in the United States of a military confrontation, uh, you know, with another nuclear power, be it Russia or China, right? These people think they can pull this off you know, I mean, I'm concerned about my kids and grandkids, you know, uh, and to me, uh, you know, it's it's not worth the interest in Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine for the American people is is negligible. It doesn't mean anything economically or politically. It doesn't threaten us. It doesn't change us here in, in the U.S. unless the U.S. elites want to provoke a wider conflict. Uh, and uh, it, it's a very... I, I don't think we're in as dangerous a position we are uh, since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis in the U.S. Uh, this is how serious this is. And uh, that's why people need to understand uh, the facts and the history behind this. Uh, Russia sees this as existential, right? This is a threat to Russia 
existentially. I mean, think about it. If the if Mexico, let's use a parallel, historical parallel. If Mexico invited the old Soviet Union Warsaw Pact, which was their NATO, uh, into Mexico, right? And if Mexico joined, wanted to join the Warsaw NATO Pact, and if Mexico and the Warsaw Pact said it was time to take back California and Texas, right, which are originally <laughs> Mexican here, uh, and uh, were engaged with, uh, you know, low-key low military threats and maybe even action, you know, from Mexico. Do you think the U.S. would waste a New York minute in invading Mexico? They wouldn't. Of course they would. Well, it's that's the parallel situation mm -hmm. with Russia and Ukraine. But people don't think of, you know, what if the shoe was on the other foot? Mm -hmm. How would the U.S. The U.S. would invade first. For I sure. <laughs> Okay, so that's my uh, long-winded uh, survey of the whole thing. I thought I would just get through it, and then we can go to subsequent questions. No, um, no, that's needed. The, the context is needed. And you said something there about a lot of people, and this is what is so dangerous now in this information war age is what I call it. There really is an information war campaign going on. And so people like us are automatically put in a box as, oh, we're Russian affiliates. They, they like to tag the Russia state propaganda on people who try to portray different alternatives to what the media is telling you, because what they're giving you is propaganda. Like they don't give you any context. And it's funny, the same corporate media nine and 10 years prior was absolutely trashing Ukraine. If you pull up some of the old headlines, they talk about how Ukraine was a backwater. Ukraine was a country full of corruption, a, a country full of money laundering, and all this stuff. The same publications like the New York Times and the Washington Post were saying stuff about that about Ukraine then as, as if they were rogue people. And now it's like the exact opposite. It's like Russophobia just left and right in the mainstream media. There's just so much that you talked about, but I think that that's needed to context. And no, is not Dr. Rasmus is not affiliated with uh, the Kremlin. I mean, all this stupid talk about people are Kremlin talking heads and all this stuff. No, this is just basic information that you can find in books like Flashpoint in Ukraine and previous books. That if you go on Amazon and look at the reviews, it's funny. The same people now who are trashing people with the official, the correct narrative are, are completely changing that tune because of what um, the military sponsorships are telling them to do on TV <laughs> because they're funding the mainstream media outlets to tell them this stuff a lot of times. And a lot of these military analysts are on the same TV programming, prop, just spread more propaganda, which is just so silly. But most people don't know that because they're not reading that stuff. They're watching the television and taking it from the experts, or at least what they think the experts are. I had a question about NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Um, why does NATO even exist um, would be a question that I had just as an outside observer. And if I understand you correctly, based on your original article in Flashpoint in Ukraine, you said that there was a 50-year lease to Crimea for Russia. So technically, Russia is supposed to have Crimea from 50 years after the Soviet Union broke up. Uh, Ukraine, I think it was. Uh, okay. Yeah, in 56, uh, 
uh, Khrushchev, then the head of the Soviet Union, you know, uh, he uh, gave uh, pretty much Crimea to uh, Ukraine, but uh, the naval base there remained Russian naval base, mm -hmm. and that's what the lease lease is really. Uh, all about you, and you're right about propaganda. Uh, and by the way, it's both sides. You know, uh, <laughs> people in Russia uh, get the government propaganda view. <laughs> We're getting the same kind of government propaganda view here. Uh, you know, you can't find alternative information unless you're very adept at uh, uh, surfing the web and uh, able to get onto more global, independent sources to find out what's really going on. And, and that includes day-to-day -day, uh, military events going on over there. Uh, it's it's uh, The propaganda machine in the U.S. is so intense. I've, I mean, even in 2003, in a run-up to invade uh, Ukraine, uh, it's, uh, which was pretty intense right before, uh, today is even worse. And, and, and it doesn't compare to the Vietnam years. You know, I remember when you had independent journalists uh, out there in a conflict zone taking photos and uh, you know, evening news and so forth. Uh, by the time we got, we got to the Iraqi wars, it was they, these, these guys were embedded, as they say, uh, with military units. Right. And now in Ukraine, uh, they're nowhere near the front lines. They're sitting back in the Western city uh, hotels in Lviv. Right. And uh, they're re reproducing government uh, uh, agendas and statements and feeding it back to CNN and MSNBC and all the others that are just uh, uh, going along with this this thing. Totally. There's, it's almost impossible to get independent views and news on uh, what's going on over there and, and the origins of this and the history and who benefits, as I said, you know, who benefits from these policies? It will give you a smoking gun as to uh, uh, who's behind it and what's happening, right? Yes, um, th that's the really, that's the scary part and the frustrating part is that it, if you're in the 2014 context, honestly, your views and a lot of the other contributors to this book, the views haven't really changed because the history hasn't changed because, I mean, everything that you predicted and you probably say yourself is even a prediction. I mean, you're just using the historical framework as your reference. So it wasn't too hard to see what was going to happen because you already had the pattern of history leading up to this. It wasn't like this started yesterday. Again, but but it's, the, it's a whole different mindset because I honestly have good, well-intended friends that believe that this is a recent occurrence. And you can honestly, you can go back as far as um, during the Soviet Union, you can see the reasons as to why, you know, this is a possibility. I mean, like you said, I mean, the vulnerability aspect of Russia is one thing that stood out when I was reading your um, contributing chapter in Flashpoint in Ukraine, because you talked about how Crimea is basically Russia's main source when it when you talk about the pipelines and when you talk about um strategics when you talk about encroachments from other countries and then i think you said it's 400 miles i mean now with finland and all these other countries joining nato i mean you're talking about a nuclear threat now with this corpus known as nato i mean it's basically in moscow's backyard yeah if if uh, uh ukraine uh, went went nato uh and uh, the U.S. is deeply involved with it militarily. I mean, the U.S. is pretty much uh, calling the military shots 
not just with uh, with uh, equipment and ammunition, uh, but we've we've got generals and advisors over there uh, who are really directing uh, the Ukrainian military here in terms of strategy and tactics, uh, general tactics. Uh, the U.S. involvement uh, last year was obvious. Uh, you know when. Um, when Russia first invaded, it had all these successes. Uh, and then it became pretty clear, I'm sure to the Russians, that they weren't fighting just Ukraine. Uh, they were fighting you, the US and NATO. Uh, and uh, that's when they, uh, they figured they better reconcentrate their forces to the east because spreading them out in four fronts uh, was, uh, you know, wasn't going to work. Uh, and uh, you know the U.S. Uh, calling the shots there pretty much in in, in uh, Ukraine. If if all of Ukraine uh, went NATO, for example, uh, the uh, Ukrainians with uh, you know who were asking, by the way, before it all began uh, for nuclear weapons as well. You know that scared the hell out of Russians. Uh, if you know they would be able to post uh, uh, missiles uh, just. Uh, what, 250, 300 miles from Moscow, you know, if, around Kharkov and places like that, if they, they put Sumy, if they placed, uh, you know, Western missiles there, uh, you're, you're talking about two or three minutes uh, of uh, response time, uh, which is very dangerous because then they're, they don't even bother, either side wouldn't even bother to verify whether it was a real threat launch. You know, we've had situations with fake launches and we almost went to war with Russia, a couple with Soviet Union, a couple of times, '83 in particular, uh, and uh, but there would be no no way to check whether it was a flock of birds or or really missiles coming in. So they would launch. You know, uh, that's how dangerous it is when you have missiles uh, that now uh, you know hypersonic missiles that go at Mach nine, Mach fifteen. All right, uh, you're talking about a couple minutes, a couple minutes. There's no no response time and and the, you could really set off a nuclear exchange. Uh, and there's no such thing as a contained tactical nuclear war. <laughs> there's no such thing as tactical nukes, right? They're all <laughs> and they will all lead to is to a, a, a global confrontation. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, the Russians seeing this are, are just, uh, you know, terrified uh, and they're not going to allow uh, NATO uh, to gain control, no matter what, it's an existential threat in Ukraine. They're not going to allow it, which is different than maybe Finland or Sweden, where you don't have crazies, right? But you've got a government that's that's penetrated with uh, neo-Nazi influences at various levels uh, in Ukraine. It's very unstable uh, regime there. Uh, it's not like Sweden, right? I don't think the Russians uh, are that concerned about Sweden and Finland going uh, NATO, right? Uh, so you can declare your NATO uh, as long as uh, the U.S. does not uh, then uh, put uh, advanced weaponry and nuclear weaponry into these new NATO countries like the Baltics, right, or NATO. But the U.S. won't put uh, military and nuclear arms uh, in those countries. It, it will defend it because it's part of NATO, even Poland, right? There's no U.S. nuclear tactical weapons in Poland. Even though the Poles want it and they've been negotiating for it, the U.S. won't do it. And that's true with Romania and other places in mm -hmm. Eastern Europe. They're in NATO, but the U.S. 
you know, uh, has not up to now uh, really given those regimes the opportunity uh, to really use those weapons themselves, right? But if you had Ukraine very unstable in NATO, the, the possibility uh, is very high that, uh, you know, the Ukrainians would go rogue and use these, these weapons themselves. Uh, and that's what's got uh, Russia uh, really terrified if they allow NATO in. Uh, but this war is going to go on. This is like the Afghan uh, lure. Uh, the U.S. wants a proxy war to go on wants it to go on to debilitate Russia militarily and economically, which hasn't happened yet. But, you know, if it went seven, eight years like Afghanistan, uh, then, you know, it, it very well could. Uh, on the Russian side, they've annexed as part of Russia these four provinces, right? So they can't back off of that. U.S. doesn't want to back off of its. Uh, this war, uh, you know, doesn't look like it, it's going to end unless... Uh, one or the other side uh, military, militarily becomes so exhausted uh, that its forces just sort of collapse. And that could happen. And that becomes a very, very dangerous uh, situation if, if and should that happen. Yes. Um, I think that this is such a, it, it's hard to even describe the conditions on the ground. You know, I can't imagine what's going on over there because, um, and it looks like a lot of the activity is happening in eastern Ukraine. And um, I think the humanity aspect is lost in this because, and, and we can blame the, the news and the info campaigns, the pro-corporate um, sponsorship, this military-industrial complex that we talk about a lot on the forum. We can blame that for the, de the dehumanization of people. We forget that um, there are people in Ukraine and Russia and um, everyday citizens are, are really losing out on this. I mean, we as everyday citizens are losing out as a result of this proxy war. Um, economically, I can't imagine how this is going to affect us now and down the road. And Ukraine, um, you talked a lot about um, two particular international monetary fund deals um, or, or loan packages. Um, you talked about um, two installments in your um, contributing chapter. And um, I kind of want to get the audience in, um, I guess, in sync with that aspect, the economics in Ukraine. How does this situation affect Ukraine and Russia economically? You, uh, you've alluded a little bit to how it affects Russia, but how does it affect Ukraine, um, considering the failures of the first two um, IMF deals? Yeah, well, uh, Ukraine uh, economy last year during the war by the most conservative estimates, uh, collapsed 30%. Uh, that's that's uh, worse than the deepest year of the U.S. Great Depression of the 1930s. Now, it's probably much, much worse than that, right? Uh, because obviously that uh, estimate uh, is not based upon uh, what's happened to the economies in the war zones. No one's going to get reports of how the economy is doing in the war zone. So even uh, central western Ukraine collapsed at least 30, 40 percent right, economically. The U.S. is providing Ukraine with $4 billion a month just to keep the economy afloat. Okay. On top of that, the IMF is providing Ukraine's central bank billions of dollars to keep their currency from collapsing. Uh, the U.S. last year, by official public figures, 
provided Ukraine with $111 billion, $111 billion, right? This year, it's going to be twice that, right? Already, uh, Biden's Pentagon budget increase, was increased by $85 billion. It went from $773 billion last year with the war even, uh, now to um, uh, $858 billion. He's going to release his budget next week. And what you're going to find is that uh, Congress always adds money uh, to the defense sector, right? Uh, well, this isn't even the defense sector. This is just Pentagon spending, right? If you want to estimate the true defense spending in the United States, you've got to add to the Pentagon share, right? You've got to add uh, money to the Energy Department because that finances all of the oil and fuel expenses uh, for the U.S. military. And the U.S. military is the single biggest consumer of oil in the world, okay? Uh, private source of oil in the world. Right. Uh, and then you've got the Veterans Department. Uh, you've got the, the CIA and the NSA and their private armies and mercenaries, even the State Department, right? Slush funds and so forth. Um, you've got the uh, Veterans Benefits, I think I mentioned, right? Uh, you've got the Atomic Energy uh, Department in the U.S., which does all the spending on uh, next generation nuclear weapons going on. You've got what's called the black budget uh, on uh, new secret advanced weaponry being developed, which doesn't show up in the government reports. It's always off budget. And that's at least another 50 billion a year. And you could throw in a Homeland Security, 50, 60 billion. And what do you got? You got well over a trillion dollars, 1.1 or $2 trillion every year on defense in this country. Now, the point is, what does it mean to the U.S., right? Oh, by, by the way, you also got interest on the government debt, which in 2019 was $350 billion. This year, it's going to be $600 billion. And in a decade, it's going to triple, right? Interest just to the banks and investors on the debt because you have this massive deficit every year. This year, it's a trillion and a half again deficit, right? Right. Uh, the impact on that on the everyday American is serious, right? Uh, because if you got to put more money into paying bankers interest on the debt and into the uh, war and into the Pentagon and so forth, you put less in healthcare and transportation and education and all those other social security. There's an attack on social security brewing now, right? Uh, so that's a consequence of war and uh, deficits and, and debt. Uh, this war, this neocon war in the Middle East, Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, Syria and all of Libya and all the rest, cost us in the first 20 years $7 trillion. $7 trillion. And what do we got to show for that? We got nothing to show for that. $7 trillion. You, know, you got to pay the interest on that, on that debt, you know. At the same time, for the first time in U.S. history here in the last several decades, the U.S. has not only increased war spending, as I've described, uh, but they've cut taxes, mostly for businesses and investors, by $15 trillion since George Bush. $15 trillion tax cuts, right? $7 trillion war spending, right? There's $22 trillion. There's your, your national debt as of 20, uh, 2020, 
before COVID. Now COVID added more deficit and debt, right? And now we're shifting and we're we're giving instead of COVID and relief and so forth and health, we're giving it to uh, the military. Same spending. We're still a trillion and a half deficit this year, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and the deficit is now thirty-one trillion dollars. I mean, the debt thirty-one trillion dollars, and that's going higher. And that doesn't include Social Security. And it doesn't include the central bank, the Federal Reserve's debt of $9 trillion. I mean, how long can we go on doing this and squeezing the average person here, the average uh, American, uh, in order to uh, continue this? Uh, And we're seeing the result of it in inflation, you know, and so forth, and and poor quality jobs. People got to work two or three jobs to make ends meet, right? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a declining standard of living going on for most people in the United States. But for the wealthy, I mean, they are going through the roof. You know, right now, the 1% latest data show 34, the 1% uh, grabbed 34% of all the income generated in this country. The 1%. 340 million Americans, a 1%. You know, which is really less than three million, actually, uh, uh, are getting uh, almost forty percent of all the wealth. You know, uh, so the impact on inflation and employment and standard of living and social programs uh, spending is uh, very significant uh, for the Americans. You know, it's hard to see these connections if you're not an economist necessarily, right? But when you've got Pentagon and more spending you know, over a trillion dollars every year just to carry out the objectives of, of, of the geopolitical neocon elite in this country, right? Uh, when you've got that much spending, it means less for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And that's what's going on. So every, Americans are paying for it indirectly. They don't see it. They're paying for it in terms of inflation. Two thirds of the inflation of the past year has been oil prices and energy prices. Here in California, this winter, natural gas prices averaging per household, six to $700 a month, a month. People just can't pay it anymore, right? And that's rich California, you know? (laughs) Imagine, uh, you know, what's going on elsewhere. Uh, But that's a direct result of the U.S. oil companies shifting their oil and their natural gas to Europe as Europe uh, drives out rush, cheaper Russian gas and, and oil and the U.S. ships it in. Oil companies love this. Of course it is. <laughs> they get two bites of the apple. They get higher prices and sales in Europe. They get higher prices here in the U.S. You know? And is anybody doing anything or saying anything about it? Not a peep out of Congress. Not a peep. Nothing. Okay, yeah, because they're all in bed together. <laughs> Why would well, they complain about something like ab- that? Absolutely. Who funds the campaigns? And who are the who pays for the lobbyists? Not you and I. Yeah, <laughs> and and hopefully people are starting to get these connections and stop making these excuses for your um, favorite politician, your favorite puppet, your favorite talking head, because that's what they are. I mean, they're puppets in suits, is what they are. And um, if you didn't get confirmation that Biden was a neocon. I can tell you right now, I could have told you 10, 15, 20 years ago that Biden has always been a neocon. 
and the rest of the Democrats and the Republicans, they're all funded by the same people and they all love war. Like it, it pays their bills, but they stick us with the rest of the debt. You know, they stick all of us with all that to be responsible for and all the loss of life and everything else. Um, I had an interesting question because just reading um, everything that you published about um, just the geographics of the region of um, Eastern Ukraine, especially, you you talked about how there's a high Jewish population in Eastern Ukraine. And, but then you have that element of the neo-Nazi presence there in Ukraine. So you're saying that that's not a far-fetched observation that there's a neo-Nazi presence in Ukraine still um, that was uh, more pronounced, I guess, back then, at least by the news outlets, the same news outlets now, they're sort of um, diminishing the the um, presence of these same groups, these same militants? Yeah, well, uh, not Jewish, but Russian population in the East. Okay. Yeah, uh, significant Jewish population all throughout Ukraine, right? Well, mm -hmm. significant is, uh, but certainly Russian uh, uh, population because over the, the decades and years, um, you know, Russians have immigrated from other areas in Russia to the eastern eastern Ukraine. A lot of work there, industrial work, you know, mines and factories and so forth. Eastern Ukraine is very industrialized. Western Ukraine is more agricultural, central and western, right? Uh, but yeah, if, if you look back at uh, what happened during the coup in 1314, uh, very clearly, uh, there were a whole number of uh, neo-Nazi parties, you know, uh, Svoboda, you know, called Freedom or whatever, and Right Sector, and mm -hmm. a whole bunch of them were involved in the coup uh, because their uh, uh, street forces, right, uh, were very aggressive and were used uh, in the coup, you know, in, in the uprising there in the center of Kiev um, to take over the government and to chase the elected president out of uh, Kiev. And they took over the government. They formed a parliament, right, these forces. Uh, they purged from parliament anybody uh, who did not agree with them. They, they drove out, uh, you know, independence. And they, so the parliament that was formed in 2014 was really dominated and controlled by these right-wing radical neo-Nazi uh, uh, sectors and then the leaders of the parliamentary leaders uh, of those movements and parties uh, became uh, key government officials, uh, and uh, their uh, street forces when when they started building purging the military Ukrainian military, uh, their street forces uh, became heads of entire regiments and battalions that were you know overtly neo-Nazi. I mean, they march with their own Nazi flags, Bandera, uh, Stepan Bandera is their hero. They have songs to, to this guy. Uh, they wear insignia and uh, so forth. Uh, you know, their own neo-Nazi uh, insignia. It's not an exact swastika, but it looks like a swastika in some ways, right? And they have their own elite military units uh, that were street thugs, kind of like, you know, Hitler's brown shirts, right? Same thing then. Uh, then that becomes the SS, right? Uh, and they've become uh, the SS. They have uh, like the Azov Battalion, the IDAR Battalion. There's, there's like, uh, you know, at least a half dozen of them or so. And they are the shock troops of the Ukrainian military. And they send those uh, 
shock troops wherever they really need uh, uh, to put up a real defense or, or, or a real offense, right? Uh, and that's going on right now in the eastern city there of uh, Bakhmut, it's called, uh, mm -hmm. where the fight is really intensified going on. They've, uh, the Ukrainians have sent their neo-Nazi battalions there. Uh, you know, the Ukrainians will say, oh, no, they've been integrated into uh, the Ukrainian military. Oh, but they've kept their battalion and uh, regimental uh, independence there as well. So you've got these military units. We're kind of like the SS in some ways, you know? I mean, in, in Hitler's Nazi Germany, the SS uh, uh, divisions were the most feared and the most effective, the most militant. Uh, and you've got that in, in Ukraine. And you still have uh, these leaders of these right-wing parties, very influential uh, in the government uh, and in key places and so forth. Um, and they won't let Zelensky, the president, now uh, really negotiate. There's no way. If, if Zelensky tries to really sit down and negotiate, uh, even with the support of the U.S., which the U.S. will not give him, uh, you know, he'll probably get assassinated. You know, by his own right-wing forces there, uh, who uh, don't want anything except uh, uh, total. They don't want any compromise. They don't want negotiations. They want the total victory. They think they can get it. Uh, but, you know, these right wingers and Nazis, they live in a, in a to some extent in a fantasy world. Um, and, and that's the situation still, still heavily influenced by these neo-Nazi elements uh, in government and uh, certainly in the Ukrainian military still. Mm. That leads me to another question. I know you know that one of the United States biggest allies is Israel. And. I'm curious as to what Israel um, plays into this equation because I've seen a lot of different publications and Israel's not necessarily biting into this thing. I don't know what kind of relationship Israel has with Russia. I don't know what that's about because I know Israel has its own military industrial complex, you know, with the United States and everything else going on in that part of the world. But I was curious to get your perspective on that. Do you know much about why that is that um, Israel, I don't know if they would be viewed as neutral in this situation. I don't know what's going on, but I'm surprised by the, the lack of, um, I guess, presence within the mainstream media talking about this, Ty. Yeah, well, uh, Israel's going through some uh, very significant internal uh, disruptions of its own, you know, the right wing versus the left wing and uh, the encroachment of the new Netanyahu government on democracy in Israel, you know, and so forth. So they got their own internal troubles. Uh, you know, when you got a country like that, uh, they tend not to take take sides and exacerbate, the, you know, the internal divisions. Uh, but, uh, you know, Israel is uh, quietly assisting uh, Ukraine uh, not significantly, not publicly, but quietly. Uh, uh, Israel is very concerned about uh, Iran's providing of drones to Russia. Uh, Israel would rather see a conflict with uh, Iran. Uh, and I think we're heading for a second. Uh, I mean, if should the situation in Ukraine really blow up in a full-scale war between NATO and Russia, you will see a major second front emerged that's still bubbling there in Syria uh, and uh, in, in uh, the Middle East. And, and I think, uh, you know, uh, Israel will provoke something with, with Iran or try to. Uh, 
uh, as part of this spreading global war, should it happen. Uh, but we're not there yet, okay? And it's not uh, imminent even. But Israel, to answer your question, is, is, is trying to straddle the fence here uh, and not be so overtly anti-Russian. Uh, mm -hmm. and uh, to, to play, I wouldn't say even neutral, behind the scenes, you know, they're supporting whatever the U.S. supports, Israel will, will support. Uh, I mean, Israel's not going to go against the U.S. publicly and so forth because, the, you know, they're so integrated uh, economically and militarily with the United States. Uh, so that's about the only observation I have on, on Israel. What is the, uh, I have two um, final burning questions, I guess, the last one is not necessarily a question, it's more of um, a clarification. But um, this talk of the Nord Stream pipeline, number one, what is that about? And number two, you alluded to that in previous articles before this even happened. So did the US blow up a pipeline? Like what did that is that confirmed that that happened? Yes, that that that's confirmed. Uh, uh, as part of Russia's uh, penetration of the energy markets in Europe, they built these pipelines, oil pipelines and gas pipelines. And there's a number of pipelines going into, into Europe. There's one that goes, goes through Turkey and uh, Bulgaria, and, and from there it goes to uh, uh, Hungary and Italy. Uh, there's pipelines directly going from central Russia into Poland and Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic and Slovakia Republic. Uh, and then there were there was this pipeline called Nord Stream One that went from uh, Russia, roughly Russia, Pet, uh, Petrograd, uh, St. Petersburg area, uh, down through the Baltic Sea to northern Germany. And Russia built the second pipeline, Nord Stream Two, right? And uh, these pipelines uh, going to Germany uh, would would have made Germany almost totally, you know influenced by Russian uh, gas and, and energy. Uh, Nord Stream 1 in Russia provided about 40% of, uh, of Germany's natural gas and about a third of all of Europe's natural gas and a significant amount of, of the oil uh, to all of Europe as well. Uh, so uh, even before the invasion of Russia, uh, US clearly had plans to blow up the Nord Stream pipelines to Germany. You see, Germany uh, had been reluctant throughout all this to get too deeply involved in the Ukraine uh, conflict by sending all the German weapons and so forth. You know, uh, they don't have that much to begin with. Uh, and it was pretty clear, Seymour uh, uh, Hirsch, this you know, star investigative reporter in the U.S., who, uh, you know, revealed the uh, abuses uh, during uh, Vietnam, the Vietnam War. He, you know, exposed what was going on in My Lai and places like that. He then exposed what was going on uh, uh, with uh, the invasion of Iraq here by the U.S. in 2003 and the uh, uh, prison, uh, Abu Ghraib prison, you know, of the U.S. and the abuses there. So he's, he's a, a real uh, investigative journalist, famously, in a whole number of, of re areas and, and exposés. Uh, he honors his sources. He will not reveal his sources. He um, has won Pulitzer Prizes and so forth. Well, he did this investigation of the U.S. planning to blow up that pipeline 
and uh, revealed that uh, Biden and others have said that uh, that pipeline will not open up. We know how to take care of it. Uh, that's a quote, right? Uh, and then he showed, he revealed here not too long ago, uh, how in September of last year, uh, the U.S., with the help of Norway, uh, which has a lot to gain by natural gas, because Norway produces natural gas. If the Russian natural gas is thrown out, then Norway sells more natural gas, <laughs> you see. So the Norway military and the U.S., uh, pretty much according to Seymour Hirsch, uh, blew up that pipeline. Mm -hmm. Very clear, the evidence is very strong that they did that. But you, you won't read anything about that in the New York Times or the Washington Post or even uh, the counter criticisms to that view. There's a total uh, blackout in the Times and the Post about that event, which is really a declaration of war against Germany by the United States, because Germany's not going to do anything about it, right? Uh, so that's the part of driving Russia out of Western European uh, energy markets uh, that this whole war is in part about. Uh, and successfully, those two pipelines are shut down now. Nord Stream 2 never got to open up. Nord Stream 1 got damaged. It's shut down now. But, you know, there still are pipelines going from Russia even through Ukraine to Western Europe, even through Ukraine, uh, and then uh, through Turkey. Turkey wants to expand its uh, purchase of Russian gas. Uh, you've got sanctions on Russian oil going to Western Europe, but Turkey's buying, and China and India buying the more oil from Russia than is being cut from Western Europe. And Turkey's reselling the Russian oil to Western Europe. So there's lots of ways of getting around these sanctions, which is occurring. It hasn't impacted the Russian economy that much. The currency has not collapsed. It's stabilized. Uh, the economy, yeah, contracted, I think, 2% about what Europe is going on in Western Europe, which is nothing. The U.S. was predicting 15% GDP collapse. It didn't, didn't happen. Uh, Russian oil exports uh, are up over what they were a year before. Uh, and the value of Russian oil revenues is up, even though Russia is discounting it by 30%. Uh, that's why India and China is buying so much, and Turkey buying so much Russian oil. It's, it's so much cheaper. It's even cheaper than it was before. Uh, so the sanctions have not worked. There was this recent article in the New York Times, I think it was, uh, documenting the fact that uh, all this talk at the beginning of the war about U.S. companies leaving Russia Eh, it hasn't happened too much. They're still there, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so the point I'm making is the sanctions aren't working on Russia, uh, but the sanctions are causing energy problems and pricing inflation here in the West. Uh, Europe is even in a worse case in that regard than we are because we have a glut of oil. The United States produces 12 million barrels of oil a day. We are the largest producer in the world because of fracking technology, more than Russia, more than Saudi Arabia. We produce more oil in Saudi Arabia. So why are prices so high if there's so much oil in the U.S.? Because the oil companies won't pump it out of the ground. You know, they want to sell it. They want to sell it to Europe and places like that uh, because they control the price of oil in the United States through the refining process. We haven't built any refineries in the U.S. in decades, and they're not going to. 
so if they want, you know, whenever they want to jack up oil gasoline prices, which they're starting to do again, uh, oh, all of a sudden, you know, one or more refineries shuts down in the spring. It usually happens in the spring for mm -hmm. maintenance, maintenance, you know, or there's a fire in Houston or something and that <laughs> price up, you know, tremendously. So uh, that's what's going on. Yeah, that explains a lot. Um, and there's so many different sides to this conflict. And um, the economics is, is something that I think you and maybe Michael Hudson and maybe another contributor, because there were so many contributors in the flashpoint in Ukraine. But uh, those articles stood out because there was an economic intention and analysis in there. And the other chapters had a lot to do with geographics, had to do with um internal friction within those spaces, but um, overtly economic policy and just the consequences outside of um, those regions, even though we talk about what this effect this could have on Europe, the United States, the rest of the world. I, I think that's well documented and it's important for the audience to kind of get that perspective. Like the big picture, you hear that a lot. Well, the economics is also a bigger part of the picture. Um, and it's something that people aren't talking about because I believe if this stuff is brought up, then the public opinion is going to drop even more um, towards the war. People aren't going to like it even more because there's already an underbelly of people who are against this to begin with. And I think people are going to start to wake up and realize, oh, wow, is this just another Afghanistan, another Iraq situation? Because I was actually talking to people I brought on um, three Assange activists and we've talked about Julian Assange on a couple of episodes and we tied that into the anti-war sentiment that's going on and how um, I talked to Mike Micheola in particular and he talks about how there's not the same degree of anti-war sentiment in this conflict as, a, as opposed to those previous ones that we've talked about, even Vietnam. I mean, we think of all these uh, major wars we've had over the decades and because the media is still grasping at the people as long as they can. But I think eventually that sentiment is going to wear off and people are going to get, they're going to get out of their comas and realize what's really happening. Well, you pointed out to an important thing and that is, uh, you know, the anti-war sentiment. Why isn't it greater in the U S right now? And partly it's because the media and propaganda is so much more powerful than even 20 years ago uh, with, with the Iraq war, right? And certainly uh, during, you know, uh, Vietnam and other conflicts. So that's one explanation. You're not getting any of the facts. Uh, you know, before you could, uh, like during uh, Vietnam, there were these uh, college teachings and everything where the facts were getting out and publications were getting out. Uh, that's been cut off uh, pretty much here. Uh, but, uh, you know, even, even beyond, you know, just the media, you got to understand that there's no draft, you know, if there were a draft like Vietnam, I mean, people would, uh, their ears would perk up and they would demand uh, to know more about this thing. Uh, so there's, there's no draft going on. It's no threat, right? Uh, economically, uh, you know, uh, people are preoccupied with uh, COVID and the collapse of the economy with COVID and now runaway inflation. The, the, the domestic economic immediate issues seem far more important to the average American. Uh, and that's another reason why. Uh, and then you've got also uh, the fact uh, that there, there aren't very many real 
solid uh, progressive organizations to lead an anti-war movement as they were during Vietnam. They've, they've been destroyed pretty much or the people got old and died off. Right. Uh, you know, that, that whole understanding of how you organize an anti-war movement from Vietnam, uh, that generation is gone or nearly gone. Uh, and uh, they got to learn it all over again, pretty much. Uh, and, uh, you know, the progressive and left parties that led that uh, no longer exist in the United States. So there's multiple reasons why, objective, real reasons why we don't have a, a you know, a massive anti-war movement here. We had this little protest here uh, mm -hmm. in Washington, you know, uh, rage against the machine. The war machine. Mm -hmm. War machine, yeah. Uh, but that, that shows... Um, Maybe the beginning of something, but maybe just, you know, how weak it really is. Uh, but it's objective reasons why it's it's weak that I just uh, recounted here. You got to understand uh, that doesn't mean it will remain that way. Uh, although the struggle is more uphill now because of the propaganda machine, I think. And I think also the people's invested um, ties into these political parties, which is as I mean, this forms premises that, I mean, it's just one mega party. I mean, it's always it's been like that. It's becoming more clear. I call I call who don't follow. I call it the single party, the corporate party of America with two wings: one called Democrat, one one called uh, Republican. Uh, they they work in concert with each other, and uh, there's not much uh, in the way of opposition within those two parties. And both of those parties work. Uh, uh, vigorously in recent recent years to prevent any third party or third organization for taking root. Uh, you can see it in the Republicans, you know, with all their uh, uh, legislation here on gerrymandering and uh, voter suppression. You can see it in the Democrats. Whenever someone in the left wing or whatever challenges the Democrats, Democrats go to court and you know slap them down and throw them off the ballot. Right. So the Democrats are just as bad as Republicans going on here. Uh, uh, but you, you know, think of them as a, the single party, the corporate party of America uh, that is expunging uh, any and all uh, organized challengers, you know, and the Republican, you, you've got this wing, uh, uh, you know, the, the Greens and the Boberts and then Getzes, you know, and that are kind of the gadflies there on, on the right. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and in the Democrats, you know, you got the so-called squad, right? Uh, and Bernie Sanders, we, we, you know, who ca capitulated quickly here in 2021 when the leaders of the party, the corporate leaders behind Biden said, uh, thou shalt not uh, uh, provide any alternatives any longer. Go sit down in the corner. Uh, and they did. They went and sat down in the corner and disappeared, you know, the so-called squad. Right. And you got Bernie, Bernie Sanders with his ideas on, uh, uh, you know, social policy uh uh, coming out totally in support of the war and the military industrial mm -hmm. complex, you know, uh, the role of these people is is to provide a voice on the far left and far right, you know, that will keep uh, the independent voters attached to keep voting for these two wings. That's their function. Uh, that's the function of, uh, of uh, Bernie Sanders. The rest engage so they'll keep voting for the Democrats, keep holding out this hope, false hope, that, oh, we're going to reform the Democratic Party. Yeah, sure. You know, and bears don't live in the woods, right? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, 
you know, that that's the role of what's going on here. And until you see an organizational breakthrough with a real independent third source, independent of the two wings, uh, you're not going to see much change going on. You know, back in the, in the 60s and 70s, you had a true left wing of the Democrats uh, and uh, a certain part of the Democrat Party broke with the establishment and joined the anti-war movement and the women's movement and the environmental movement. You know, you had that phenomenon. Uh, now you don't have movements. Mm -hmm. sense. And certainly the, quote, you know, left and right wings of these two wings, the wings of the wings, you know. Uh, and, and that's why you've got, uh, you know, Biden coming out and said, oh, we need a strong Republican Party. Right? Of course. <laughs> well, he, he knows that the left wing, the Democrats, uh, the, the vulture can't fly without a right wing. You know, they need two wings to fly. They know that. They play this electoral shell game on us all the time. You know, oh, there's no alternative because they caution the alternative, right? You got to vote for us or them. Republicans come in, they enrich their. Uh, uh, their their rich buddies, you know, and wreck the economy. Uh, Democrats come in saying they're going to do something about it. Uh, they do some token stuff. Nothing really changes, and they enrich uh, the rich. Uh, and that shell game goes on and on and on every year. And in the meantime, uh, you know, we're like the, the rest of us are like the frog in the in the hot water pot. They're turning the heat up little by little, and we're sort of <laughs> living living with it and thinking, uh, oh, it's not that bad, but it's getting hotter and hotter. Yes, it is. And um, I do want to um, touch on one thing you mentioned before we talked about the anti-war sentiment before we go. And uh, I definitely want the audience to um, reach out to you if they have any further questions and comments, like the quickest way to get in touch with you. But the comment I had was, you mentioned that we don't have conscription here but I think we would both agree that maybe the conscription is happening in Ukraine because since this is a proxy war, instead of our troops being the people being disposable, we're basically the Ukrainian soldiers are being disposable. And it kind of leads to a final question I have for you. You mentioned earlier that you see this going on for a while. Um, do you think that there's a possibility that this could end quicker than what you project because due to just so much loss of life? Because um, I can't imagine the conditions right now. And from what I read, Russia really hasn't even committed their full arsenal when you talk about this conflict. Yeah, well, even President Zelensky of the Ukraine admits that they're losing 500 guys killed a day. 500 a day. Look, you know, uh, the totals, even conservative and both sides of the estimate of those killed in Ukraine is somewhere, you know, between 200 and 300,000 dead in one year. I mean, think about it. The United States lost about 300 and some thousand in all of World War II. Ukrainians and Russians have lost that many in one year. Uh, this, this is a slaughterhouse going on. Modern military weapons are a slaughterhouse. Uh, the average soldier on the ground uh, doesn't have much chance uh, of it, you know, with all the drones and the missiles and so forth. Uh, uh, so, you know, you could reach a point where, uh, you know, the exhaustion of, of uh, boots on the ground occurs. 
and then you will see a collapse. But you know what's going on in both sides here is that uh, no one gets to retreat <laughs> in uh, in in this war. Uh, you've got these battalions of uh, of uh, the neo Nazis. You know uh, anybody uh, on the Ukraine side that uh, surrenders or retreats, uh, they shoot them. They just shoot them. And the same thing uh, occurring to some extent on the Russian side with this mercenaries there, uh, the Wagner group. Uh, uh, you, you don't retreat or you get shot, right? Uh, I mean, it's really brutal. Uh, yes, it could collapse. You could re reach a point where it really collapses on either side here uh, when, when the losses are so great. Um, you know, to digress a little bit on that, on that point, uh, the reason why uh, uh, Ukraine had successes last, late last summer was uh, you know, the Russians came in uh, they made certain gains in the first several months, right? With their minimal forces of 190,000, right? Uh, the U.S. Um, uh, mobilized and trained uh, at least 300,000 new troops for Ukraine over the summer and uh, re released them, you know, in July and August. Uh, and uh, they overwhelmed uh, the Russian minimal forces. I mean, that's just what happened. The Russians were stretched too thin and uh, led by the U.S. Uh, advisors and generals, uh, you know, who knew where to strike. Uh, and uh, they had certain gains up there around Kharkov and down at Kherson, right? Uh, until the Russians threw in more troops and stabilized it. And now they are pushing back, uh, you know, with their offensive. And we'll see another Ukrainian offensive. But all these offenses are offenses of just uh, grinding up human beings, a tremendous amount. And it, it is possible that, uh, you know, what I said about a long-term war going on, it, it could collapse, but uh, the U.S. will never allow Ukraine to collapse now. It's too, it has too much at stake. It's too deeply um, penetrated economically uh, in, in Ukraine. Uh, it, it staked uh, U.S. and NATO reputation on Ukraine not falling, um, and they won't allow Zelensky uh, to uh, to even negotiate, let alone uh, give up. And he, of course, he won't because his right wing will will get rid of him if he tries. Right. So he's caught between these, you know, NATO and and uh, I, I. I wouldn't envy the guy. You know, eventually, you know, he's going to be. Uh, replaced with somebody else, I think. And that's probably going to be the favorite of the U.S. NATO and U.S. military, uh, the general here, uh, Zeluzhny, his name is, in Ukraine. Uh, I predict he'll be the next president of Ukraine at some point here. Basically, you got to understand, you know, the U.S. has so much at stake, you know, drawn its own red line here. It will not allow Kiev to fall. Uh, and... Uh, the Russians have annexed those as part of Russia. They can't give up part of Russia now. Uh, if they gave up those eastern provinces, then, uh, you know, it might cause a, a chain effect and then other provinces would uh, want to go independent as well. So that's not going to happen. The Russians will never pull out of the east. And you might get uh, a solution, temporary solution, where they split the country. You know, that's possible. Uh, kind of like a North Korea, South Korea. Uh, armistice uh, and then a low-grade conflict uh, thereafter. But I don't think you're going to get that until Biden leaves office, right? And uh, of course, he's going to leave. He's not running, you know? 
<laughs> anyway, it tells you he's running. You know, that's naive about the U.S. politics. Uh, I mean, you know, the guy's already 80 years old, right? You can see. You can see he's not as sharp. Uh, so, and, and there's moves to replace him. And there's moves to uh, substitute DeSantis for, uh, for Trump on the other side. I think that'll fail. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll see. You know, American politics are very volatile right now, and anything can happen here. But uh, the U.S. will not change its policy, no matter what happens in Ukraine, uh, until 2025 at the earliest, if it does. Well, um, Professor Rasmus, let me tell you, let's, um, if possible, let's follow up down the road because uh, I would love to bring you back on. This has been such a wealth of information uh, today, and I wish I had more time to talk with you even longer. I believe we could talk a few more hours. Probably. I really do believe that. But um, can, um, tell the audience where we can reach you. And um, in case individual audience members wanted to ask you a question directly, how, how would they be able to contact you? Okay, uh, my blog is just simply jackrasmus.com, J-C-K-R-A-S-M-U-S.com. And, and there I post my weekly articles almost, almost on a weekly basis in radio interviews and so forth. Uh, so uh, on you know, rather further lengthy analyses, uh, you can check me out there. Uh, my radio show on Progressive Radio Network out of New York is every uh, Friday at uh, 2 p.m., uh, New York time, 2 p.m., called Alternative Visions, Progressive Radio Network. You can uh, catch my verbal uh, articles and essays virtually every week. You know, I just had a show here on the attack coming on Social Security. Um, so you can check me out there. Uh, for day-to-day -day commentary on things that are going on, you know, immediately, the last 24 hours, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at drjackrasmus. That that's simply uh, my website uh, is a little bit out of date. I'm doing most of my uh, posting on the blog now, uh, but uh, my website is uh, JR Productions uh, and uh, some of the older, longer going back to 2010 uh, video interviews and postings and so forth are, are available there. You can get my various books. I've got a published book. You can, you can go uh, on Amazon and check them out there. Uh, I got a forthcoming book called The Viral Economy and the Aftermath uh, about uh, picking up where my previous uh, book ended, uh, The Scourge of Neoliberalism, uh, Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump ended with, uh, I think it was 2019, right before the COVID thing. So this next book picks up the economy, uh, COVID and the aftermath to COVID. Uh, we'll come out probably later uh, later this year, right? Uh, you can follow my plays, by the way. Um, they are posted on my, my website, uh, 1934, uh, Our Time, and so forth, uh, are all, all available there with some of the, the music and songs associated with those productions. Uh, but those, those are all the various places, right? And then, of course, listen to shows like uh, Kiko Free. What is it, Kiko Free? Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum. Free Thinkers Forum, you know, uh, uh, periodically, you know, maybe once, once or twice a month, I, I give these interviews like this. Uh, or just email me if you have a question. You can email me at uh, uh, Rasmus, R-A-S-M-U-S, -S, at Kiklos, 
K-Y-K-L-O-S.com. Kiklos is a Greek word for meeting place, right? So Rasmus at Kiklos.com if you want to get in touch with me about something uh, having to do about the, you know, future writing or presentations or interviews or whatever. Jack Rasmus, this has been a great episode 30. I've had the pleasure of talking with you today and like I said, down the road, I'd be very happy to bring you back on if you'd be so gracious to talk and share more of your knowledge with um, my audience. I greatly appreciate you coming on today. Uh, beautiful people. In store tomorrow, we have Matthew T. Witt, who is also going to talk about um, Flashpoint in Ukraine, his contributing chapter, The Labyrinth of Geography in a Time of Terror, um, from the same book, again, Flashpoint in Ukraine. And we have uh, Jeffrey Summers. He's going to come on towards the end of March, and he's going to talk about his contributing chapter in the same book that we've discussed today. Again, I thank you, uh, Jack, and beautiful people. Keep tuning in. Tell your friends and family, and um, tune in to Jack Rasmus's information as well. I'm going to link all the information in the description. Uh, have a wonderful day, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. My pleasure. We'll talk to you again, I'm sure. <laughs>